You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. What did we end on last week? We have a gap in between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7 of about 60 years. A 60-year gap between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. So by the time Ezra comes on the scene, Zerubbabel's dead. Joshua, the high priest, is is more than likely dead. Um, It's a new generation now that's living in Jerusalem from the generation that has come before. Not many came back before, only about 50,000. And we made the conclusion from that and the deduction from that if, if they did come back, they, they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were getting themselves into. They were leaving Babylon, and even though they were servants there, it was a very luxurious place. And they were going to come back to Jerusalem, a place that had been burnt and down to rubble. And how are they going to live? How are they going to survive? What are they going to eat? What are they going to do? Uh, and that's all what's happening right now. And Ezra comes on the scene in chapter 7. And immediately, uh, we see some very interesting things about Ezra that I want to bring out. So first of all, in verse 1 through 4 of chapter 7, we see he's a direct descendant of Aaron the priest. And then in the verses that Brother Rusty read, uh, we see that he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. And when I first hear that word scribe, I think of somebody who just maybe copies something out. But to be a scribe was to be a teacher. Uh, To say that you were a scribe and a ready scribe in the law of Moses was to say, yes, obviously he did uh, do a lot of copying and a lot of compiling, but he knew the law of God very well. And in fact, he knew it so well, he would teach it. He was a teacher to others. And you can see this in verse number 10. Ezra made a threefold decision. I'm going to seek the law of God. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to teach it to others. I preached a message about that before. It's been a long time now. But all three of those things are incredibly needed. You can't do one of those things and leave the other two out. You can't do two of those things and leave one. If you're just going to seek and do, but you're not going to teach, you'll never have fruit in your life as a Christian. If you just seek and you teach, but you don't do, that's called being a hypocrite. If you do and you teach, but you're not seeking, you're going to run out of things to say every now and then, or you're going to be doomed to be teaching people your words and not the Lord's words. So it's very important that Ezra and the Bible brings it out. Here is the reason that the good hand of his God was upon him. And you're going to see that echoed all throughout the book. The good hand of his God was upon Ezra because for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So very important things right away. And in verse 6 and 9, you see two examples of that, of God's hand being on Ezra. In verse 11 through 26, he was commissioned by Artaxerxes. This is incredible to me. He was commissioned by Artaxerxes. This heathen king, and we've seen a pattern of this now from Cyrus, and then there was a little bit of a gap in Ezra chapter 4 where the temple was put to, put to um, it was kind of stopped, the work was put to an end. Uh, but then Darius comes, and Darius makes his very pointed uh, decree. And then you have two other kings after Darius um, in this 60-year gap. 
And now we get to Artaxerxes. And he tells Ezra, I am commissioning you. You are able to go back with a new group to Jerusalem. And he sends him with riches. He gives him an expense account for the temple. Uh, and he even makes sure that he doesn't have to pay any toll or taxes along the way. And that's what Artaxerxes does. And he does it because of this. Look in verse uh, 25 of chapter 7. And thou, Ezra, this is part of Artaxerxes' decree. And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges, which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know them not. So the ones who do know what God's word says, find rulers over them to make sure they keep doing it. And the ones who don't know what it says, teach them. And here's an, an expense account in order to do that. And look in verse 26. Whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death or to banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment. Here's a question. Why would this Persian king be so kind to the Jewish people? Now, we can see a little bit of why Cyrus did it. Cyrus did it because he said, I want you to go back to your temple and I want you to worship at your temple and pray for me. And if you look at a lot of other things from Cyrus in history, he kind of had a knack for doing that to any, to any god. Oh, yeah, sure, pray to your god for me. Then Darius comes along and he does something because Cyrus' previous decree he refers to but now you have Artaxerxes sending a new group and giving new commissions and a new expense account and no toll, no tax. Why would he do that? Well, his dad was named Ahasuerus, and Ahasuerus married Esther. Esther, the Jew, is his mother-in-law. So he's going to have a little bit of a, of a, of a love for the Jewish people. I thought that was incredible. And look at Ezra's reaction to what Artaxerxes says that he can do in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And, he, and hath extended mercy unto me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. So we have here now the return under Ezra. And chapter 8 is all about Ezra's return to Jerusalem. And verse 1 through 14 lists all the family names returning with him. On the way back, he runs into a little bit of an issue. He doesn't go very far, and he camps there for a little while. Excuse me. And he realizes, we're going back to beautify the temple. We're going back to basically bring reinforcements, if you will, to this new generation of people. And we have no Levites with us. No Levites have left from Babylon. Okay, well, we should probably go and get some Levites. So he does. He goes back, and he gets about 40 of them to come back. Um, and as he comes back, he starts to think. We have a four-month, very perilous journey in front of us. And the reason that he has been able to go from Babylon back to Jerusalem is because he has been talking to the king, and the king knows that the God of Israel has a reputation of taking care of his people and watching over them and protecting them and appreciating their worship. And that's why they've always been prospered in the past. So Ezra says, we're going to fast and we're going to pray that the Lord watches over us for these next four months. We're not going to ask for a guard from the king. 
And Ezra basically says, why would I in one breath be telling the king, we believe in a God that protects and loves and, and uh, we can trust in. Oh, by the way, can you send some guards with us because we feel, under, you know, we feel uh, afraid on the way back. He said, no, I would be ashamed to do that. So I'm going to fast and pray. And they go throughout the entire journey and not one thing faces them. And they come back to Jerusalem, and immediately they begin. So this new generation comes back. They have access to the temple. And what they do is they uh, start to offer sacrifices, and they atone for themselves. They immediately do that. They give uh, offerings, and they start following the Mosaic law. They take Artaxerxes' decree, and they go to all of Artaxerxes' officers in the area and basically say, when we come up to you and ask you for expenses, you're supposed to give them to us. And here's Artaxerxes' letter that says that. Everything seems to be going very well. And already you're skeptical because I said everything seems to be going very well. And in chapter 9, immediately, I, I mean, well, it seems like within a week after Ezra gets back, uh, things are looking really good. Look at what happens in verse 1. Now, when these things were done, the princes came to me. The princes came to me. So the leaders of the people saying, the people of Israel and the priests... And the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. The ones who are, the, who are doing it the most are the leaders, the leaders of the people. Verse 3, how do you think Ezra, a ready scribe in the law of Moses, a man who has prepared his heart to seek and do and teach the law of God after he's heard of this great sin, what do you think he's going to do? How do you think he's going to feel? Verse 3, when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle. I plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Now, there's been a couple times where I did something so dumb that my dad didn't know what to say. But he never grabbed his own hair and yanked it out of his head, and his own beard. Verse 4, Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. I mean, within the first week of coming to Jerusalem, he sees the temple built, the sacrifices are going. It's been a generation now. The sacrifices are still going. The temple is up. It looks good. He's there to beautify it. The priests are doing their job. The Levites are doing their job. But then he realizes the same priests that are offering sacrifices, the same Levites that are helping in the temple, the same people that are joyously coming up to the temple and giving these sacrifices and free will offerings are the same people that are ignoring God's word and sinning and intermingling with the people. And if you know anything about Israelites' history or the Israel, Israeli history, that was painful. Israelite history, 
You'll know, I mean, what is one of the main things that sent him into exile? Intermarrying with the heathen. And they're doing it all over again. And Ezra doesn't, what? he's astonished. He doesn't know what to say. He sits quiet for almost a whole day. And people start coming up to him, other people who know this is a big deal. Obviously, the Bible did tell us about this. God's word did tell us about this. This is a huge problem. And in verse 5 through 15, Ezra prays. And we're going to read it because it's an incredible prayer. At the evening sacrifice, I had rose from my heaviness. And having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to a spoil, to confusion of face as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments. Do you follow what he's saying so far? This has been our modus operandi. This has been our reputation from the very beginning. And this is why we went into exile for the first place and now for just a little bit, for just a little bit, you've given us another chance and we're messing it up again. You've given, us, you've given us grace and mercy in the eyes of a heathen king to come back and to rebuild the temple and to establish worship again and to even start rebuilding the walls at some point. But after all of that, we're not obeying your word. Look in verse 11, which thou hast commanded by thy servants, the prophets, saying the land unto which ye go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. What is he bringing out? This is the reason you brought us into the land in the first place, to remove these abominations of people who are living wickedly and who are worshiping idols. That's the reason that you brought us into the first place and now we're in here and we're mingling with them. And we're doing the same thing that they are. And he ends the chapter by saying, Lord, we can't stand before you. We can't. It's amazing that you've let us come back. It's such a blessing that we've basically been able to rebuild the temple without having to give any of our own expenses. It's been at the expense of the Persian Empire that we've done this. That's incredible. And we still have that opportunity. We're still back here. We're still free for, for the most part. You know, we're, we're still on our own land. We're still able to go to the temple. We still have this beautiful temple that you've allowed us to rebuild. But we're not obeying your word. So what good is the temple if we can't stand before you in the temple? What does David say in Psalm 103, or I'm sorry, Psalm 130? He says, Lord, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, who shall stand? 
Think about that for a second. If the Lord truly marked our iniquities, who would ever be able to stand before him in any way, shape, or form? And Ezra brings that out. In chapter 10, a great multitude of people come around Ezra and they're crying, they're sorry for their sin. A man named Shechaniah offers a solution. He says, here's here's what we can do. The law of Moses says that uh, these marriages should be um, put away. That these marriages never should have happened according to the law. And uh, right now, I think you should say, according to the law, look in verse 10, verse 3, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 3. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Ezra comes back and says, are you serious about this? And they say, yes. And he makes a decree, and he says, in three days, I want everybody to be in Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people had engaged in this sin. In three days, everybody is in Jerusalem. But it's in the middle of December, and there's a great rain. It's cold outside. The people are outside, the Bible says, trembling. And they're not only trembling because it's cold and it's raining, but they're trembling because they're fearful of the sin that they have engaged in. And Ezra comes up to him in verse 10. He says, And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. But the people are many. It is a time of much rain, and we are not able to stand without, and we can't stand outside throughout this whole thing. Neither is this the work of one day or two, for we are many that have transgressed in this thing. It takes a long time. But I believe it's, let me see here, two months. After two months, all of those marriages have been put away. And it gives a list. That's how the book ends. It gives a list of these men who have married strange wives and they put those wives away and they separated themselves as the law of God said that they should. And I mean, some of them even had children that they said goodbye to. And that's how the book of Ezra ends. Now, we're going to go into Nehemiah and see how Nehemiah in many ways kind of picks up the story um, from as far as the timeline is concerned. But the purpose is very different. And Ezra's purpose, I believe, is very straightforward. What you see at the end of the book is the man who prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it did exactly that. Do we really mean it when we say the the Bible is going to be our final authority in all matters of faith and practice? Or do do we only mean it when it's convenient for ourselves? Do we really mean it? That when our life does not match the Bible, we are wrong and we must change. Do we really mean that? And Ezra was a man that it meant something to him to say, I am going to read God's word, I'm going to obey God's word, and I'm going to teach other people to do the same. He meant it. And therein lies the purpose of the book of Ezra. So in Chronicles, we really saw the worship of God highlighted, didn't we? And that's where it picks up in Ezra chapter 1 through 6. And they rebuild the temple and the worship is reinstated. 
But then in Ezra, we see the priority of the word of God. So in Chronicles, we see the importance of the worship of God. In Ezra, we see the priority of the word of God. So think about this. The word of God and worship cannot be separated. Can you think of a way where God's word and the worship of God can be separated? If you only focus on worship to God, but you ignore God's word, you know what you're going to have? You're going to have false worship. But when you truly focus on God's word to seek it and to do it and to teach it, you won't be able to stop worshiping. In fact, that's where true worship comes from. What's the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119. A song. What are songs for? For worship. And what is Psalm 119 all about? The word of God. And I mentioned this on Wednesday. A lot of people believe that David wrote Psalm 119, but if there's a second place man who wrote Psalm 119, they believe that it was Ezra. So you cannot separate the two, but you have to focus on God's word first. That is the priority. That is what leads into true worship. Stick with me here and let me explain a little bit more. So God had led them back to Jerusalem, provided a way for them to rebuild the temple. He protected them from their enemies. Finally, the temple is built and worship is reinstated. But when Ezra comes on the scene, is everybody worshiping? Yes, but people aren't obeying people aren't obeying God's word. And doesn't God say through Isaiah, this people draw nigh to me with their mouth and with their lips, do they honor me, but have removed their heart far from me? Doesn't it say in Jeremiah chapter 6, listen to what God, listen to what God says, hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. And here's the next verse. To what purpose cometh there to me incense from Sheba? And the sweet cane from a far country. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet unto me. You're not obeying my word. What is your worship going to me? What does Jesus say? Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Over and over in the Bible, God makes it clear, worship and, uh, so worshiping the Lord and offerings as far as they were concerned, you know, giving the offerings of the bullocks and everything, it, it didn't, it meant nothing to God without obedience to his word. And God teaches over and over, hey, forgiveness is a wonderful thing, isn't it? And to have the temple and to have the ability to go and to make offerings and to find atonement, and isn't that an incredible thing? But doesn't the Lord say in the first place, Rather than asking for forgiveness all the time, obey. And just do what's right. Living right is a lot better than getting right. Getting right is good. Living right is great. And, and do, uh, you know, coming, getting right with God is fantastic, but just being right with God is what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, in Hosea, he says this, The Lord desired mercy and not sacrifice. So the people during that time, during Hosea's time, they were sacrificing and they were doing all these things and Lord making atonement for our sin, but then they would walk out of the temple where they just atoned for their sin and they were oppressing the poor. And they were exacting usury upon their own people and they were making their own people slaves among them and they were not loving their neighbor as their self, which is, isn't that supposed to be what the whole law is wrapped up in? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. So they're coming into the temple, oh Lord, forgive us of our sin, and then going out and sinning. 
And the Lord says, I would rather... I desire you just to be merciful to other people and to treat them the way that you're supposed to treat them rather than treating them like garbage and then coming in and sacrificing to me. What does Joel say? Uh, another contemporary prophet, you know what he says? He says, rend your heart and not your garments. Because God keeps calling out to them that Joel would preach and all these prophets would preach and say, you're wrong, you're sinning, you're doing, you're doing wickedness. And they would say, oh, you're right. And they would rend their garments. And God says, I'm sick of you rending your garments. Why don't you rend your heart? Why don't you stop just changing the outside and change the inside? I love that song. Lord, I'm so tired of being stirred, but not being changed. Change must come from the heart. And that comes from God's word. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Worship does not bring holiness. Holiness is what allows us to worship. Holiness comes from God's word. Obeying God's word and listening to God's word, te teaching us to others. And that's what Ezra is bringing. So God had allowed, had used Zerubbabel to lead God's people back to Jerusalem. Now he's using Ezra to lead God's people back to the law, back to God's word. And that is so very important. And it's something that we need to listen, uh, listen to today. And here's an uh, um, illustration that I thought of. They needed a man like Ezra who determined to seek and to do and to teach the word of God. They didn't realize it at this point, but after Ezra and Nehemiah come, there's one last prophet that's going to come on the scene, Malachi. After Malachi, there's 400 years of no prophets. They don't realize that. It's going to be 400 years until John the Baptist comes and makes straight the way of the Lord. So they need a man who's going to come and say, hey, while the Lord isn't speaking more, listen to what he said in the past. Listen to what he has spoken. And they need a man to do that. But think about this. In the passing of one generation, they had come back with Zerubbabel and rebuilt the temple and reestablished the worship, but in the passing of one generation, they weren't listening to the word of the Lord anymore, and they weren't following it. Listen, church, we are always only one generation away from losing God's hand upon our church and upon our family, upon our country. I do believe God's hand is still on our country. I believe there's one last revival that is coming before the Lord calls us home, and I want to be a part of that revival. Let it start with us. Moving on. Imagine, here's my, here's my illustration. So, boys, imagine being given an old, albeit wrecked, Ferrari. And somebody commissions you. Listen, fix it up, okay? I'll pay all the expenses. Well, now we're talking, right? You just have to do the work. You just have to do the work. Just repair the Ferrari. So you put the work into it. You do the, you know, you do all the manual labor, lifting of the engine. I don't know anything about cars, but uh, you know, you put in the uh, the blinker fluid, and you make sure that the transmission switch is on the right side, and all of that. And you get it all in, and you do all the work, and then you even get to drive it, and it becomes your everyday car. That's pretty cool. That would be a great privilege, wouldn't it? I mean, somebody just gifts you a Ferrari. Yeah, you have to fix it up, but they paid for it all. But then you start driving it. Now, here's the deal. As you start driving it, you never read the owner's manual. You don't know how to do any maintenance on it. So you don't do maintenance on it. How long are you going to be driving that car? I'm not speaking in your language. 
somebody gives you a busted Ford F-150. F-350? <laughs> F-350? Hemi? Yeah, that's a thing, right? But you <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, that's blasphemy, isn't it? What is it then? What, don't, don't, you're, you're distracting me. Okay, no. Adversity, adversity. Push through it. So you fix it up, but you never do any of the maintenance on it. How long are you going to be driving that truck? Not for very long. So being given a brand new vehicle or you know, being given the chance to fix up a vehicle, that's one thing. Then actually being able to drive it, that's another thing. Maintenance, I would say that's the most important thing. So they've been given an incredible opportunity, haven't they? To come back to Jerusalem. And albeit, yeah, it's, it's, it's a shadow of what it used to be. But Haggai does tell them, look, even though this temple is like a shadow of what the old one used to be, the, the, the desire of the nations is going to walk into this one. It's going to be good. Jesus is coming into this one. That's a time to get excited. Jesus is coming into this one. Okay, so don't, don't you worry about that. You reestablish it, and so they do. And then they start doing all this worship, but they're not following the instruction manual. And so the maintenance starts going down and down and down. And they're still driving the car, but they're trying to shift the gears without pressing the clutch. And they're... I'm going to stop with the, with the car um, things, because I, I honestly don't know. But do you see where I'm getting at? Maintenance is such an important thing. And the Israelites were given this space of grace to restore their relationship with God again. And they rebuilt the temple. All expenses paid. Uh, and they reinstate everything. But the Bible says, if you're going to worship the Lord, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And they were trying to worship the Lord without living holy. So Ezra comes on the scene and basically tells them, what's the point of leaving Babylon just to live like you were still in Babylon? That doesn't make any sense. You need to seek God's word and you need to do it and you need to teach it to other people because Ezra understood it is following God's word. It was God's word through Jeremiah that had first allowed them to come back for them being fulfilled. It was God's word that was not only going to show them how to worship and why we worship, but how to continue in worship and to make their worship real. It was God's word that was going to do that, and Ezra saw it, and he also saw something else. Ezra saw God's word was going to keep them on the track that would lead them straight to the Messiah. And what a shame that when Jesus came, and what does the Bible say about Jesus? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And his own received him not. After 400 years, it's not a long time. The people who should have known Jesus the most missed him. Because they lost their relationship with God's word. They missed him. And Jesus even looked at those scribes and Pharisees, men who followed in the footsteps of Ezra himself. He looked in the faces of those scribes and Pharisees, and what do you say? Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they that testify of me. And yet you won't come to me, that you might have life. 
And isn't it incredible? The Bible says the common people, when Jesus came, the common people heard him gladly because he spoke as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. You know what the scribes and the Pharisees started doing? They started arguing. You had a very conservative group of Pharisees. I just gave it away. You had a very conservative group of scribes and students of the law who there's resurrection and all of these things and there's an afterlife and there's angels and, you know, there is eternity. And then you had another group that would argue, no, there are no angels and there is no resurrection and there is no eternity. So you had one that was Pharisees and then you have one over here that doesn't believe in eternity and angels and all of that stuff. So they were sad, you see. I did not come up with that. I stole that. (laughs) But the people who should have known, all right, all right. The the people who should have known, who should have seen him the most, missed him. They missed him. And they kept up with the worship. I mean, in fact, that's what they really focused on. So when the Lord came and said, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days, how dare you say that about our temple? How dare you blaspheme the temple? And Jesus ends up coming and saying, wait a second, what's more important, the temple or the Lord of the temple? And they can't even answer him that question because they got away from God's word. So let me ask you this. How well, how well do you know your Savior if he walked in the back door and didn't make himself known to us? Would we know him? How well do we know our Savior Show me how well you know your Bible, and I'll answer that question for you. Get to know God's word. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. You'll have a lot to talk about with the Lord when you know your Bible. Seek it. Do it. Teach it. I'll leave you with this. True worship comes when we see just a little glimpse of who God is. Have you ever been reading your Bible or you had an answer to prayer? Something, something happened and you saw just, even just walking outside and seeing a beautiful sunset and you just see a little glimpse of who God is and immediately it drives you into worship, doesn't it? Oh God, you're incredible. If we want to know who God is, seek and do and teach what he says. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.